For years, many of us parked our rigs so that the rig might be blocking lane, but it was parked in line with traffic, and all approaching traffic could see was the back end of the rig. It's easier for approaching traffic to understand that a rig is stopped, parked, and not moving if it's parked on an angle. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast. Now, here's your host, Scott Orr. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. This is the show for and about firefighters. We're informing and entertaining members of the fire service just like you from coast to coast. Your department likely doesn't respond to as many fires as it used to. Maybe you do a lot of medical runs, but I'll bet you respond to a load of motor vehicle crashes. You probably don't think of them as a big deal, and most of the time they're not. So you become complacent. But my guest today says you need to worry about your own safety when you're at a crash scene. Jack Sullivan is the director of training for the Emergency Responder Safety Institute. He retired from the fire service after 25 years as a firefighter, company officer, and safety officer. He's also a certified safety professional with 35 years of safety consulting and training experience. And Jack Sullivan joins me now. Welcome to Code 3. Hey, good morning. How are you? Doing well, thanks. It's my impression that a lot of firefighters don't really worry much about this subject once their rig is parked in the traffic lanes. Is that true? Well, I think for some people, they're far more aware of the hazard because of close calls or actual struck-by incidents that have occurred in their first-run area. When one of those events occurs close to home, it kind of sticks in your mind and reminds people that you've always got to watch your back anytime you're operating your moving traffic. Today we're talking primarily about highway incidents, not surface streets. But is the speed of oncoming vehicles the only difference in those? Obviously the speed is different on the high-speed limited access highways than on surface streets. But having tracked these types of incidents now for almost 20 years, Um, What we're finding is that it's not just the high-speed limited access highways that are the danger zone. We have recorded incidents where firefighters and EMTs have been struck by vehicles uh, on suburban streets, country roads, in parking lots at shopping centers. We have a number of cases where firefighters simply go into the grocery store to do food shopping for the shift, uh, stepping out of their rig, being struck by a vehicle in the parking lot. And just recently, we had another case of uh, firefighters checking a truck on the front apron of a fire station, having a car crash into the truck while it was parked on the front apron because it was involved in a crash on the street, bounced off of the street and into the front apron. And I think that's worth remembering because I don't think there's any way you could have predicted that last incident would happen. No, and unfortunately, it's happened a couple of times. Uh, A few years ago, I even recorded an incident where a civilian drove their car into the open front door of a station, through the station and out the open back door of the station, around the parking <laughs> lot and left the scene. 
didn't strike anybody at the time, but at the same time, it could have been a uh, a disaster under different circumstances. And I doubt if anybody considers that exposure on a regular basis. You like to remind us that the D drivers are a major cause of these situations. What are the D drivers? Well, that's the term that we've given to those drivers out there who are uh, drunk, drowsy, distracted, drugged, and that's both legal and illegal drugs in some cases. And in the last few years, we've had to add disgruntled, disrespectful, and just plain dangerous because of the types of incidents that we've seen. We had a firefighter a couple of years ago in Michigan who was helping with a boot drive, collecting funds for MDA, and at the time had been working at an intersection. Traffic was backed up a little bit. A driver got pretty disturbed about the whole situation, exchanged words, and um, uh, threw a handshake at the uh, firefighter on the way by. I actually went down the street, turned around, and came back and purposely ran over the firefighter, killing him. We couldn't fit that into any of the other D categories that we had been talking about for years, so we had to add in the disgruntled and uh, disturbed D drivers, too. There's more of them out there than we care to think about in some cases. Let's talk about the ways to prevent problems at an accident scene. Let's start with the best way to position a blocking apparatus. Do you have a preference there? Well, what we like to do is train the personnel in each station, uh, number one, about the hazard so that they're aware of the type of incidents that have been occurring, that it happens on any kind of roadway or any kind of surface street where traffic is moving, and that the way they approach that incident scene and size it up will determine the best way to provide a block at the scene for that initial arriving unit. Depends on where the incident is located in the roadway. If you think about a high-speed limited access highway, in many places it's two or three lanes in each direction. Uh, The incident could be in the right, left, or center lane. And uh, that will make a difference as to how you might position your first in rig at the incident scene. We always recommend that the blocking unit be parked on an angle. And there's a reason for that, actually a number of reasons. But the primary reason that's very often not understood is that studies have shown that a fire truck or any vehicle that's parked on an angle in a travel lane is much easier for approaching traffic to to understand that that rig is stopped, parked, and not moving than if it's parked in line with the traffic flow. So for years, many of us parked our rigs so that the the rig might be blocking lane, but it was parked in line with traffic, and all approaching traffic could see was the back end of the rig. And very often, they didn't realize that that rig was stopped, parked, and not moving until the rate of closure was too fast for them to take evasive action or stop, and they ran into the rig. It's easier for approaching traffic to understand that a rig is stopped, parked, and not moving if it's parked on an angle. Uh, Whether it's angled to the right or to the left depends on where in the roadway the incident occurred and which lanes you're trying to block. It also depends on what the incident is that you're responding to. So we're talking today about car crashes, but don't forget we also respond to vehicle fires on a regular basis, medical assist calls brush fires along the side of the road, uh, hazardous material incidents and things like that. So it can be a number of different things. We also tell folks to think about if you're going to be in a fire situation and pulling lines and going to have a pump operator standing at the pump panel, that that's part of what you need to think about when you spot your apparatus at the scene. 
we want to make sure that that pump operator, if there is one, is going to be on the protected side of the engine so that the engine is parked on an angle where the operator is protected from oncoming traffic. Do you advocate flares and cones or just the engine? Or do you leave all that to the highway patrol? Well, it varies from place to place. And I've had the opportunity to teach about this subject all around the country. And in some areas, they have very active Department of Transportation Safety Service Patrol programs that very often can be at the location of an incident before the fire department ever arrives. Those safety service patrols are equipped with cones and flares and warning signs and arrow boards and other traffic advanced warning devices. In those areas where you have safety service patrols, we very often depend on them to provide that advanced warning. For those areas where we don't have that luxury and where sometimes law enforcement is busy and takes a while to get to an incident scene, we do advocate advanced warning uh, using either emergency vehicles or flares and cones and, where possible, advanced warning signs. It doesn't really matter who places those devices. The key is that somebody or one of the disciplines responding to the incident takes the responsibility to provide for that advance warning. First in engine or the first in ambulance usually has their hands full with the incident itself. So many departments send additional apparatus or equipment, or in some cases, like in the northeast part of the country, fire police officers might be responding. It's their job to provide that advance warning and temporary traffic control. So it's really... It really varies by region. It depends on what resources you have available to you responding at the time of the early stages of the incident and who has the capabilities to provide those temporary traffic controls. I'll be back with more right after this. On any given day, you are tasked to be your best and power through the worst of times, all at a moment's notice. We know the sacrifices you make each and every day. Your success relies on superior equipment and the best training available. That's why Federal Resources is here to support you, the everyday hero. We are here so you can excel. Discover your success at federalresources.com. I wanted to talk about Irving, Texas. They've had so many apparatus getting hit at crash scenes. They took two retired engines. They labeled them Blocker 3 and Blocker 12, and they used them just to place across traffic lanes. What do you think of that idea? Well, I commend them for being innovative and thinking outside the box. And um, I give them credit for trying something that, uh, as far as we know, has not been done in other places around the country in that particular fashion, where they used reserve apparatus to fulfill that need. Uh, I have to give a shout-out to my friends up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who probably were the first ones to develop a blocker vehicle that they call Utility 2. They took a surplus dump truck from the Public Works Department in their city, <laughs> put it in the fire department shop, painted it red, put the uh, fire department markings on it, added warning devices, uh, siren and warning lights, they equipped it with a large DOT-type arrow board on the back, provided reflective and fluorescent chevrons on the back, and through a cooperative agreement with the Michigan Department of Transportation, 
MyDot provided them with an attenuator trailer to pull behind that dump truck. When they go out on the interstate in the city of Grand Rapids now, they deploy Utility 2 as a blocker vehicle with an attenuator trailer, the arrow board, and a dump truck as opposed to a fire unit to act as their primary advance warning and blocker vehicle. One other department in Michigan has developed a similar type of vehicle and put it in service, but to the best of my knowledge, I think Irving, Texas was the first department to use surplus fire apparatus to serve that need. I think it's a good idea, but I also caution fire departments where this is an example where we're taking on the responsibility for temporary traffic control with incident teams which for years we've been told that's the responsibility of law enforcement and the Department of Transportation. Problem is that law enforcement and transportation folks can't necessarily get to us in the early stages of an incident. So we absolutely have to do what we can to protect our personnel. But if we're going to take on the responsibility of providing a blocker vehicle like Irving, Texas or Grand Rapids, Michigan, or some of the other agencies that are starting to look in that direction, I think we also ought to be seeking some assistance from the other agencies for the financial impact and staffing that's needed to provide those vehicles at an incident scene in the early stages of an incident. I think we absolutely have to do things like that to protect our personnel, but if we're going to do the job that other agencies should be doing, um, maybe they should be sharing the cost of that. I wanted to talk about the incident in California where the CHP officer detained an engineer because he wouldn't move his rig from blocking lanes of traffic. What's your take on that? Well, first thing I would tell you is I'm not personally involved with that incident, so I can't speak to the particulars of it. I am aware of it, and we've uh, tried to keep uh, an eye on the proceedings as things go along. But it's not the only incident that's occurred in the last few years where law enforcement and fire department personnel have not agreed on how to manage a roadway incident. And um, although the situation has gotten better in the last few years, we still have areas of the country in different times or different incidents where uh, law enforcement personnel and fire personnel don't necessarily agree on the best way to manage traffic or position apparatus at an incident scene. To help alleviate that, there has been a training program deployed around the country developed by the Federal Highway Administration with input from fire service, law enforcement, transportation, safety service patrol, towing and recovery personnel, EMS personnel, on uh, a multidisciplinary training program on traffic incident management and responder safety. And one of the aspects that we cover in that training class is cooperation, communication, and collaboration between the different disciplines and the different agencies who respond to traffic incidents in your first-run area I'm working together before they ever get out on the street at an incident to talk about their standard operating guidelines and procedures, why they do what they do for their discipline, and making sure that everybody's on the same page on positioning of apparatus and how they're going to manage an incident scene, who's responsible for what, in advance. So the people get to know each other across discipline lines and understand and expect that the different disciplines will operate a certain way at an incident scene. In those areas where that kind of communication, collaboration, and cooperation is in place, we don't see incidents like the one that we saw out in California. I would tell you that uh, even though it happens occasionally, I think the communication and collaboration between disciplines around the country 
has started to get much better. There's a better understanding of which disciplines have which responsibility at incident scenes and how they're expected to operate at the incident scene. And they have some guidance from the Federal Highway Administration on what the feds think is the list of best practices on how to handle these highway incidents. So I think the situation's improving. I hope we'll see fewer of those altercations at incident scenes in the future. But that was an unfortunate incident at that time. All right, we'll leave it there. Jack Sullivan, thanks for being on Code 3. Sure, I appreciate the opportunity, and if there's anything I can help you with on this subject in the future, please reach out. And we put some more information on safety at crash scenes, as well as the Emergency Responder Safety Institute on our website at code3podcast.com slash mvc. Check it out. Here comes your trivia question. Kind of makes it sound more exciting that way, huh? Who was the first female fire chief of a career department in the U.S.? I'll have the answer right after this. Now's your chance to get your hands on Code 3 t-shirts, sweatshirts, and more. Show your support for the podcast that supports firefighters from coast to coast. Just go to Code3Podcast.com and click on the Code 3 store link. Or go to Code3Podcast.com slash shop and tell the world that you're a Code 3 fan. Here's the trivia answer. The first female head of a career fire department was Chief Rosemary Bliss in Tiburon, California. She became the fire chief in 1993. Which, for those of us who were born a while back, seems like it was just yesterday. Although, I guess it really wasn't. Time flies whether you're having fun or not. Alright, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me then. I'm Scott Orrin. Until then, I'll see you later. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.